Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. This is the first episode I have recorded since the Eagles won the Super Bowl. I actually took two weeks off after doing episodes like every week, two or three times a week for like six years. I took some time off. And I have to tell you something, people. I chose the right year to move back from Los Angeles because I came back, the Eagles won, and the city and the area has been amazing. I mean, I went to ShopRite. I'm wearing a t-shirt. People are coming up, go Eagles, go Eagles. I go to a bar. There's no fights. I go drive around the city. There's no one sitting there cutting each other off and no road rage. It's just, it's an amazing feeling, and it's just something I'm so glad I got to share it back here because in LA, you know, everyone's an asshole when it comes to the, you know, the Eagles. They're always like, oh, how many championships do you have? Which also bothers me because a lot of my friends are posting on Facebook. They're sitting there about sitting there talking about different stuff where they're like, oh, you know, Chris Collinsworth wasn't you know, biased or the, the people saying it plays illegal. Who cares? You know what? The bottom line is the Eagles won. They can come out and say it's fixed. And if we still have the trophy, I'm fine with that. Anyway, my guest today, I know he's a big Eagles fan. In fact, I saw him on the Today Show uh, on Super Bowl week. Uh, he, he's always on there. He's, he'll be, I'm sure he'll be there on St. Patty's Day. But he's, he's a guy who's from the suburbs of Philly on the Pennsylvania side. We're on from the New Jersey side. And my guest is Chef Brian Duffy. How you doing, Brian? Good morning, sir. How are you, man? Good. Now, you must be loving it. I'm sure, you know, I mean, you're, you're from Philly. I mean, you grew up here. I mean, yeah. what, how, did, how have you seen the city change? I mean, do you notice a different feeling in the last few weeks? Oh, it's been brilliant, man. You know, we're, we're, we've got a really bad rap over, over a bunch of years. You know, they talk about the snowball that happened 46 years ago. Um, you know, we're, we're as passionate as everybody else. I think one of my favorite, one of my favorite pictures that I saw was on ESPN, uh, ESPN.com, and they had posted these uh, riots and burning the city down. But two out of the five pictures actually had Massachusetts license plates in them. Right. Um, so, so it wasn't just us. Uh, but the the city has been just brilliant, man. I mean, everybody has really. Uh, it's exactly what you said. You know, people are saying hi to each other and everywhere you go, there's that, you know, go birds or there's an Eagles chant or something to that effect. I mean, you know, we talk about Wawa around here for, for, for viewers that don't know Wawa. Wawa is kind of our, our local 7-Eleven, even though they're up and down the eastern seaboard now. And the big joke of Wawa is we'll hold the door for you. But, man, are we going to curse you out if you cut us off in the parking lot? Right. And, uh, and everybody's just been awesome, man. Super nice to each other and everybody's in green. Now, now you have kids. What is it like for them? Because, you know, I was thinking about it. I've noticed that any kid who is 19 and under can sit there and say to a Cowboys fan, you know what? You've never seen your team win the Super Bowl. <laughs> How are your kids reacting to it? I mean, are your, are your kids football fans? You know, my, my, I have daughters, so my girls are my girls are Snapchat fans. Um, but, uh, you know, other than that, they're not huge sports fans. In fact, uh, I, I felt... Uh, I felt very much like my father on uh, on the day of the Super Bowl, who, uh, oddly enough, my father passed away in October. It's a shame he wasn't here to see this because he was a huge Eagles fan. But uh, I, I sat on the couch and I was jumping around and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm screaming during the game and I'm jumping out of my seat and I'm, you know, I'm, uh, like the whole nine yards. I'm doing everything that any fan would, would do. And I looked over at my daughters and they weren't even phased. They were just on their phones. They weren't really. And I'm like, girls, you have to watch this. This is, this is iconic right here. Uh, they had more fun at the parade than they did during the game. See, that's awesome. Now, now you're a chef. Now I got to talk to you about this because you know I grew up in, in Cherry Hill, and there used to be a rest stop. It still is on the turnpike called the Marriott. It used to be a Roy Rogers. And every oh. guy when we were in high school, you know, we sat there, and as the, the work. Really, not work release. That makes it sound like we we're in jail. But if you, when you got out early, it was work study. We all worked at this restaurant. Now, when did you start working here? And we, of course, you know now you take it to another level. I mean, you're a successful, known chef. When did you start deciding you wanted to cook? Was was I know you come from an Italian, uh, Irish family. Was it then, as a kid, watching your family cook, or what got you into this this culinary field? So I started working in restaurants when I was 14, coming from a family of, of great cooks. My, my, my father was Irish and Italian. My mother was Irish. Uh, my, my grandmother 
actually kind of instilled a lot of the love for what it is that we do into us. And oddly enough, I just posted a picture of her tomato sauce recipe the other night that she had typed out for my mother, probably in the early 70s, after my parents had gotten ma married in the 60s. But my father was always the very adventurous cook, uh, you know, doing things like Jeez, uh, I can't, you know, stuffed, bra you know, stuffed braised veal shoulder. And my mother was always kind of doing the classic, really comfort stuff, chicken cordon bleu and stuffed chicken breast and things like that. But I didn't really get my love for it or my real interest for it until I was about 19 years old. I was working at a little place in Ardmore, Pennsylvania called McCluskey's, and I was a waiter. And I, I had direct access to the kitchen because the kitchen was kind of at the end of the bar. It was about a 10 or 12 seat restaurant. And I used to watch the guys in the kitchen cook, man. And there was just, there was a, a bond that was between them. And there was this really cool kind of joking, fun attitude. And then we'd go boozing at the end of the night. And I always just thought the chefs were super cool because they were badasses. And for me, that really kind of piqued my interest. And then, you know, fast forward two years, I kind of fast tracked it. And, and next thing you know, I'm in culinary school. Now, uh, you one were, of my, I'm sorry, what's you, that? You, which, which culinary school did you go to? I went to the restaurant school in Philadelphia. Now, it's funny because, you know, it's, you know, you think about it because I worked at a restaurant down the Jersey Shore in Stone Harbor years ago called Teresa Martins. And the owner was a, was a guy who was a waiter at Lebec Finn and he made all this money and he ended up because they made so much money at that restaurant. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, the waiters were sick. So he bought this restaurant and he was going to be the cook. And his assistant chef was a guy who went to Johnson and Wales, which seems like those were the culinary schools where you went and Johnson and Wales. And it ended up the, the guy wanted to be the maitre d'. So I was ended up being an assistant chef for that one summer and it was fun and it's cool because you know people don't understand how much pressure chefs are under you know waiters there's like six of you you know chefs it's like you in a small kitchen there's not a lot of you and, you and the pressure's on you so you went to culinary school now did you did you did they start getting you prepared for all this pressure you would feel later in your career you know for me it really wasn't School is school is as much as you're going to take out of it, is the one thing that I always say. I've met a lot of great chefs that, that did go to school and didn't go to school. The one thing that school taught me was, one, finance of how to do how, – how to, how to kind of operate a restaurant in a very lower-scale way. Now, granted, this was in the 90s, so we didn't have the technology that we didn't do now. There was a lot of photocopied books and, and textbook work and notebook work and stuff like that. It's not as hands-on as it is now. Um, there really isn't they, – they leave that up to the externship and the internship. And for me, I chose to really work my ass off. I mean, it's the direction that I went. I, I went to school full-time. Um, I worked at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia as an apprentice where I worked during the day in the morning to mid-afternoon. And then from there, I went to a restaurant in Balakinwood called San Marco, which was a beautiful Italian restaurant in an old mansion on City Line Avenue that is now the world's most unique KFC. <laughs> um, but uh, they didn't teach you the pressure of being on the line at that point. Uh, and, and for me, I learned it from being in the restaurants. You know, I learned it from being on the line at the Four Seasons. I learned it from being on the line at, at San Marco. And then I bounced at a bar uh, in Devon. You know, I was, a, I was a bouncer. That's how I paid my way through culinary school. Now, when you went to these restaurants, what made you choose those restaurants? And as you were in culinary school, what was your... What was your focus? Was your focus to buy a restaurant? I mean, because you said it was the 90s. And back then, there was not this explosion of chefs where now chefs are personalities. I mean, chefs are on TV. I mean, chefs are like the comics were of the 80s, rock stars. I mean, what was your goal when you were in culinary school? To get out and open your own restaurant or be a, a executive chef at a really classy joint? Honestly, I have, I have absolutely no idea what my goal was at that point. It, it really was one of those things where I, I had graduated from high school in 1989. I was, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went to college uh, and I went for business and I hated it. I really just couldn't stand it. Um, so the direct, the, the idea to go into culinary school was really something out of a necessity, I think, at that point. I enjoyed cooking. One of my friends had called me and said, hey, I really think that you would be good at this. Um, you know, you cook for all of us anyway, you should take it to the next level. So I kind of attribute a lot of that to my 
to my buddy. His name's Jeff. Um, but for me, honestly, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. I wanted to get a job. And my goal was to go as far south as possible. So I actually ended up working in Key Largo uh, for a year. Uh, and the funny part about that is I got that job working for a chef who was a complete ass. He was a horrible human being. He's dead now. But he was just a mean person. He used to burn you and throw things at you and scream and yell at waitresses. And, you know, this is a guy who's coming from the Four Seasons where I used to have Tony Clark standing behind me saying, that's not any shallot, that's a four season shallot. And now I go to Jay Anderson who throws, you know, who throws <laughs> potatoes at waitresses as they walk out the front door. Um, but for me, I really just wanted to, to get into a kitchen and start to play. So I bypassed a lot of the traditional stuff because I washed dishes as a kid. You know, I, I cooked for a little bit before I went to culinary school, but I really graduated culinary school and became a sous chef right away. Um, so for me, I didn't know what I wanted to do until about a year or two into being into the business where I realized that I wanted to be the leader. I wanted to be the chef. And that was my goal. Now, how does one become the leader? Because, you know, you know, it's funny, we, you know, my girlfriend watches Hell's Kitchen and I always laugh because I've done marketing for restaurants too. And I was a waiter and I always laugh thinking that these people aren't just coming off a line and running a kitchen because it's hard work and you have to gain a respect. I mean, how did you go about becoming the man? What, what steps did you take? You know, one, I asked a tremendous amount of questions. I mean, it was never ending for me. I was always asking questions and, and oddly enough, that really pissed some chefs off. Um, I, I, it was it was one of those things where chefs didn't want to give up their secrets of stuff. So I had to really figure it out on my own. Um, when it came to food, I had a really good kind of palate and brain for pairing things together and for writing menus and descriptions and, and, and putting ingredients together was something that was good for me. The finance part of it for running a business, because being a chef is not just how well you can cook, it's how well you can effectively monetize and, ma and manage a kitchen. And that's one of the things that I do now is I really, I try to manage kitchens as well as I possibly can so that we can open more. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of people that want to graduate culinary school and have the term executive chef. They want a TV show. They want a radio show. They want a podcast. They want a manager. They want an agent. You've got to work through it, man. You've got to go the distance. You've got to wash dishes. You've got to mop a floor. You've got to clean a box out. You've got to clean a grease trap. You've got to clean the fryers before you can truly become the chef of the kitchen. And and the term chef is so loosely translated anymore. You know, just by looking at resumes, I, I see executive chef thrown in places all the time. And then I have conversations with these gentlemen or these females to to get an insight into what it is that they've done because I'm hiring for a property or something like that. And most of these quote unquote chefs don't even know the numbers of their business. They don't understand the basics. All they know is that they ran quote unquote a kitchen and you know, it, it's really a tough thing to watch because now we have fry chefs, saute chefs, grill chefs. Everybody wants to be the chef, but nobody wants to put the work in. Yeah, it's it's crazy like that. Cause yeah, and it is hard work. That's what people don't get. I mean, it's it's such a fascination. You have to know your food. You have to know what you're doing. I mean, a good chef has to know saute station. They have to know fryer station. They have to know broiler. They have to know back of the house and prepping. And I think a lot of times the restaurants, especially corporate ones, sit there and they just hire people for like that one position. Like, okay, you're a saute guy. Well, then what happens if, if something goes down and the, the fryer or broiler guy gets done, gets hurt? You know, you're screwed if you don't have a guy who knows what he's doing. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's one of the best parts about about a chef is really that that kind of guy who we call them a roundsman, somebody who can do everything in the kitchen. And and if you're a chef who can't do everything in the kitchen, then then you're really just not a great chef in my mind. I mean, you have to be able to work every station. Look, I, nobody wants to work Mother's Day fryer, but but it's one of the things that has to be done. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I know when I was a sous chef and a chef at certain restaurants and, you know, Mother's Day is a really tough day for people because they don't want to work. They want to spend that day with their families. And so you have no call and no show and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I worked at McCormick and Schmick uh, in Conshohocken, in a place that did, you know, three and a half million dollars a year. And my fryer guy doesn't show up on Mother's Day. Guess what? I'm, I'm bread and shrimp, man. Right. You know, it's the way it works. You just. One of the greatest things that I find about chefs 
is there are very few of us that are prima donnas in in the kitchen world when you get into the tv world there's a lot of you know i don't know how, how i don't know how aggressive i can be on your show you can say whatever you want you can say whatever there's some bitches out there man well i you know? think i think there's that whiny... you know i i see that because as i say you know as I said, working in restaurants, you know, and, and growing up back east, it's probably worse back here because, you know, the East Coast, oh. and I know growing up, we're ball busters. You know, you bust oh, balls. Yeah. That's what you do. And I remember, I mean, I remember when I worked down the Jersey Shore, the owner's forgot wife now is was the waitress, and, and the chef would just always call her a princess when she screwed up the order. And he'd always come in and yell at us. And we're like, dude, come on. She screwed up this, you know, this, this tempura she didn't take it out it died and it's just it's just funny i mean it's like i mean that's the thing you have to have you have to have a edge to you to work in a kitchen and people don't get that you know especially this day and age because we've really kind of bypassed the traditional hierarchy of the kitchen where we have an executive chef an executive pastry chef an executive sous chef a sous chef a roundman you know a garmanger the, the the traditional roles of the kitchen have stepped back a little bit from you know from the 70s 80s and 90s of things now granted there are still your fine dining kitchens that are out there that really do follow that hierarchy but but the true brigade of the kitchen has really taken a back seat to finance um, you know, we're in a really crazy kind of a, a really crazy place, not even kind of we're in a really crazy place with restaurants at this point. Um, one, you know, you think about Philadelphia 20, 25 years ago, we had 900 restaurants in the city. Now we have 9000, you know, so we've taken the traditional server and we've watered it down to somebody who can show up for a shift. We've taken a lifelong cook, somebody who who wants to. Who, who wants to, uh, you know, have a job? They want to do something for a long period of time, and now we get now we have guys that go back and forth. You know, they'll work, they'll, they'll hop a job for twenty five cents extra on a paycheck. You know, they'll say, "Well, I'm making you know ten twenty five over here, but you're only paying me ten an hour here." And I'm like, "All right, brother, that equates to roughly about ten dollars extra a week." But go ahead, right? You know, uh, you know, and then we have a lot of stuff with this corporate stuff where we look at Outback that's paying fifteen dollars an hour just to cut blooming onions. So we're at a really hard time right now. So one of the things that I've really been talking about is the fact that, that one, as chefs, we really have to step up our game for our staff. We have to educate. We have to engage with them. And we have to empower them to do stuff that they can, they can start to grow and learn from what it is that we're doing. Otherwise, all we're producing is a series of $9, 10 and $11 an hour cooks that are just staying cooks. They're never moving forward. They're never progressing. Um, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it's it's one of the things that I really kind of talk about is that chefs have to be all over the place all the time because at this day and age, we just don't have the quality of staff that we used to. Now, with you being a chef, how did you start getting into your own? Was it was it when you uh, went and opened Christopher's or, or when did you start breaking into wow. where, where you've gotten to a point where you are now on TV? What was your what would you say was your stepping stone when you started breaking into that that realm of a chef that one people recognize and two that people know the name of? It's, dude, it's so funny you said Christopher's because Christopher's really was 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 almost a launch pad. Christopher's was a tiny little 36 seat BYO that I was a quote unquote owner of in the late nineties. Uh, I had a partner with me who was, uh, he was an immature child who, uh, I found, you know, one night doing blow off the back of a toilet at a, at, at Deco nightclub. Um, you know, and this was in the nineties and I realized why our bills weren't being paid. It's because he was doing blow at the end of every night, but for me, that, you know, Craig LeBan had written us up at that point and gave us, I think, three or four bells or whatever it was. Like, we got a great review, a really great review. And that launched us. And it gave me an opportunity then to kind of be a little bit more creative and have a little bit more fun with some stuff that we've been doing. And, and that, to me, was really important. And then from there, I kind of got into a corporate world where I was stifled then. I really wasn't allowed to have a tremendous amount of personality. I just had to execute. So I didn't really start getting involved in TV until about 2003, 
2004 where I had done a whole bunch of local stuff. Uh, I remember Berlinda Garnett who called me from Fox News and she was like, hey, it's Memorial Day and we'd love to have a chef come down and talk about grilling. Would you mind, would you do it? And I remember borrowing my buddy's truck, going to my parents' house and getting their grill and bringing a huge cooler. I'm talking about like a four foot long cooler down to Fox where I had to set up basically on Market Street. Right. <laughs> and and from that point forward, and I remember having a conversation with somebody once who said, one of the good things about you, and they were talking about me, and I don't talk about myself a lot, but I pride myself on the relationships that I've built in the TV industry. They said, one, you're not a prima donna, and you perform. You execute on cue. And, and I took that that advice. And from there, I then started to do some stuff for Food Network, where I met a wonderful, wonderful woman named Lee Seaman, uh, who really kind of educated me on TV and what it's like to be on TV. And one of the things that I've always done is I've always fed a crew. If I can feed you, I will feed you. And you get in good with crew when you're on TV. And guess what? You're going to be good. Because once, if that crew remembers you and they say, hey, we need a chef or something, and they go, you know what? I remember this guy in Philly. His name was Brian Duffy. He was awesome. Boom. Name drop. You move in forward. Then as I started to go forward, you know, I started to make a name for myself on a local level by doing NBC in Philadelphia. Um, I really, uh, I've really worked my butt off. Uh, with NBC. I used to do a weekly show with them for Kraft. It was sponsored by Kraft. I would come up with new ingredients and new recipes every single week using only Kraft ingredients. So if it was one week I would do tacos, I would use Ortega taco shells and I would make sure to use the Ortega tomato, you know, salsa. And I would show people how to do things differently with everyday ingredients. And then from there, uh, the next thing you know, I, I end up on the Today Show. And then the Today Show kind of launched me into a couple of different things, which was more local, more national. I got a sponsorship with GE where I was doing spokesperson stuff more or less for GE with Martin Yan. And then from there, uh, you know, fast forward to, you know, 2006, 2008, 2009, Spike TV coming around, Bar Rescue coming out. And then that just kind of propelled my face and my hats, obviously into uh, a, a different world. So for me, it was a tremendous amount of hard work. I busted my ass. I remember the first, the first Food Network show that I ever did, I got paid $750 for two days of work, which was a great amount of money. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it, it, was, it was a lot of hard work, man. Two 14-hour days doing two different shows. It was a really, really exciting time. And then I got home and had to explain to my wife at that point why I was gone for three days and made seven hundred and fifty dollars. You know, <laughs> right now, now the Philadelphia, you getting your name in Philadelphia. You know, I know you coined the new Celtic style. That was a, a, a term of yours. Was that one of the reasons why Philadelphia was interested in you when you got these people contacting you, or was it because of your personality? I mean, why do you think the Philadelphia people sat there and wanted you when there's so many chefs? You know, I, I don't I, I never really got that. I never I never knew what got me in front of a camera as opposed to somebody else. I think that at this point, though, it was really in the beginning stages of the world that we live in of, quote unquote, celebrity chefs. You know, this was the beginning stages of that. This was this was 10 years after Emeril Lagasse. You know, this was 10 years after Emeril really got launched forward. Um, it, I don't know. You know what? It, you know what it is, man. I, I honestly think it was just luck. I think that that some somebody probably came into the restaurant and had a good meal, and they said, "Hey, I had a great meal over here one day," uh, and and that was that was it. You know, they liked the meal that I made them, and then it, it got passed on the line, and and the next thing you know, I'm I'm standing on TV. So now now I, when now when you went on TV for the first time and a few times, <laughs> did you get nervous? Because it's, you know, I mean, it's funny that you, you know, people don't think about that because you cook and you're in your own world and sometimes people see you and you 
are cooking for basically you're performing even though people don't see you. You're behind making the right. kitchen run. When your first few TV appearances, were you nervous even though it wasn't like a studio audience? Is it weird to be sitting there saying, I'm going to be cooking and people are going to be watching me and there's going to be people at home watching me when I'm used to being in the back? You know, I, I, everybody always asks me that question and, and I'm going to be honest with you. I don't remember. I really just don't remember because I do remember this. I do remember thinking how cool it was. And then I remember kind of having a, having an idea of the direction that I wanted to take it. And, and that's, you know what? I, I don't, I don't think I've, I've been nervous. I don't know why. I think it's because I knew what I was doing, but, but I've learned a tremendous amount. I, I, here's one thing. I learned a lot through being on live TV. I learned a tremendous amount. I, I know I have, I've, uh, I've been bumped, you know, Hey, I'm sorry. We're not going to have you on today because whatever this happened, I know that I have been rushed along. Hey, we said we had six minutes. Now we only have three. I know that I have gone long and been talked over by a news anchor. Um, so you kind of learn what to do. And I just don't get nervous. Like everybody says, Hey, you did the today show for the Eagles, you know, the Friday before the Super Bowl. Honestly, Steve, I don't remember. I don't remember. I, I got to tell you something and don't be mad at me, but you did, you did the today show on yeah. when the Eagles played the Seahawks. Oh, I know. And, and but I, I made, I made those hot dogs, the Seattle hot dogs, just because what? I looked, I looked at them and I said, I've never seen a hot dog like that. And I, yeah. <laughs> it was bad, but uh, I had to admit that. Now, it's just funny, but your stuff, I mean, your Sloppy Joe recipe, explain, okay, but people don't know, explain your Sloppy Joe recipe that makes it, I, I looked at that, it's just so the listeners go, people, if you don't know a Sloppy Joe, most of you think Sloppy Joe is manwich. I mean, let's get real. That's what it yeah. is. I have to watch my salt, so I, I would occasionally make Mrs. Dash Sloppy Joe. But tell, yeah. tell the listeners, your Sloppy Joe, I, I was talking to my girlfriend Joanne today, I'm like, I have to make them. Just tell because this is always fascinating to me about chefs. It's such a cool spin on it. Tell them what is your recipe and, and how did you come up with that? You know, so so whenever I do the Today Show especially, I try to do something that's a little bit over the top. I try to do something that's kind of fun that most people wouldn't see. So if you think about it, when I did the Seahawks, I did barbecue ribs, but I did a white barbecue sauce. Right. Um, you know, when I did this round, I wanted to do something that was over the top a little bit and and we had been known as the underdogs the whole time. So by underdog, a lot of people think of sloppy. People think of somebody who's just unkept, somebody who's uh, who, who's just not, who doesn't have any class. You know, that's the idea of an underdog. That's what most people see. So for me, I really wanted to play off of that. So the, so automatically, what are you going to do, man? You're going to do a burger? No, I wanted to do a sloppy Joe. I wanted to do something that that kind of was indicative of of what Philly was at that point. So you know. I, I did a I did a I did a basic sloppy Joe recipe, which would traditionally be with ground beef. I mixed mine up with ground beef and ground pork, and then I also added in shaved ribeye. So shave down ribeye, super thin, same as you would with a cheesesteak. Get your mushrooms in there. Get your you know I do roasted wild mushrooms. I do caramelized onions. Um, I get them in the bottom of the pan. I add the ground beef in. I brown everything up, and then I added ketchup. And I deglaze the bottom of the pan with birch beer, whereas a traditional Sloppy Joe recipe has ketchup and brown sugar and stuff like that in it. I wanted to replace the brown sugar with something that was really Pennsylvania. So I replaced it with birch beer, man. What's more Pennsylvania than birch beer? Right. You know, made in, by the Amish. So, and then we did that with, with American cheese and sharp provolone. Um, I wanted to have a Philly-style sandwich. And to me, the Philly Sloppy was the way to go. That's uh, it. Looks amazing. I, mean, I was looking at your uh, website, your Facebook page. Now, now, Bar Rescue. Now, when when did you sign on for that? And when you signed on for that, did you think that would it would be such a big hit? I mean, a friend of mine. Do you know uh, Neil Gallagher? You probably know Neil. Works on that show. He, you know, uh, he's a, he's a cameraman, and then now he's directing some episodes. He's a oh, sure, absolutely. He's a yeah. Philly guy. So, how when yeah. did Bar Rescue come along? And and did you think that it would take off? I mean, it's people. 
love that show. I watch it, and I, I mean, people, and I've worked in the restaurant business, but people yeah. who haven't worked in the restaurant business like that show. What do you think, why do you think it took off, and what was it like working on a situation where sometimes you're working with people who probably really don't care about the restaurant? I think for me, the, the one, I didn't know, you know, I had done, so I had done a, quite a bit of TV at that point, and I had done quite a bit of pilots, and so, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of on a fence with a lot of stuff. One, because because for me, I'm a superstitious guy as well. So on the one hand, I, I was super excited about it and but didn't anticipate anything with the future with it. I just knew that it was going to be a fun show to do. And then on the other hand, I hoped that it was wildly successful on multiple levels because I was on the show because it was a show that was created by my brother with John Taffer. Um, you know, so there was a lot that went into that. And, and it's funny because a lot of people say, oh, your brother got you on TV. But what's funny is I was on TV 10 years, you know, right. 11 years prior to that. And uh, my brother and I never talked about the show. Um, we did every now and then. But it was it was after the second season. It was really a very toxic environment um, to work on. You know, once once the host becomes all of a sudden a celebrity uh, who doesn't handle celebrity well, it, it gets to be a very toxic situation. Um, it was an awesome show to work on. The crew was just amazing. Such a great group of people. And I had worked with crews before, but there was a great bond that really went with an episodic crew. You know, when you meet a crew that does, you know, a couple of shows here and there together, they don't have that bond. But when you meet a crew that travels around the country together, you know, for three months at a shot, four months at a shot, you start to see a family grow. You start to see the way that things should be done. And it, to me, that was one of the neatest aspects of the show was that world of friendship and bond. And, you know, I have it still to this day. I mean, Michael Tips is one of my... I mean, Michael Tips is one of my best friends, you know, and he was on the first season of Bar Rescue and he was he was asked and let's just say asked to leave. Um, but he was, you know, I mean, Tips is 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 still to this day one of my best friends, Nick Liberato, one of my dear friends, Phil Wills, one of my friends. You know, these are people that have been on the show that I have become very close with. Um, so to me, it was really awesome to watch. But the biggest problem that I had with the show was really uh, the, the, the negativity that it brought amongst people. It was something that, uh, I, I'll be honest with you, you know, I woke up one day and, and my girlfriend at that point was like, you've kind of become a dick. <laughs> you know, she's like, you're angry all the time. You know, you're, you're always snapping at everybody. And, and I realized a lot of that had to do with the show. Um, so, uh, you know, Taffer and I had a conversation and uh, that was it. It was time to go. So you're on that show, and then now people are getting you. Now, now after you leave that show, you know, you decide, even though you've been on TV and you've been working, it really seems like you've really started to develop your brand. How did you go about developing your brand? Because, you know, you have the Duffer Side Spice, you have, you know, your podcast. When did you decide that I want to develop the brand? And did you want to sit there and stay, you know, did you want to be a celebrity chef? Or did you want to be, you know, because I know you do you travel and do consulting too. Or did you want to be someone who was on TV but wasn't, you know, because wasn't, I, I'm not saying that celebrity chefs are, are phonies, but, you know, you don't think, you don't see that guy getting behind a kitchen anymore. Right. I mean, what did you, what was your plan? Did you say I wanted to develop my brand and, and be a guy who's also hands-on? Because this is what I love. You know, I was working in restaurants during a large portion of that time on the show. I actually left restaurants to go and work and develop products because I wanted to go and see what the developmental process was to bring a show from concept to shelf. That to me was something that was really important. So I had to, you know, I needed to figure out how that process worked. So I left restaurants um, right after I left the show. And I remember this was so classic. No, not after I left the show. I was still doing the show. But I remember having a boss that I worked for. Uh, I was the corporate executive chef for a chain of restaurants. And I remember sitting at the bar and the chain of restaurants were these. One was an Irish pub. One was a Mexican place. One was a seafood place. And at this point, we were opening up a, a, uh, an organic farm-to-table restaurant. And I remember sitting at the bar and the owner of the company was a motivational speaker. 
And he was one of those guys who always tried to empower you. At least I thought he was that empowering guy at that point. And he sat across from me and he looked at me and he said, you know, you better give up this idea of being a celebrity chef and being on TV. It's time for you to start focusing on being in the kitchen. And I thought to myself, this is a motivational speaker who literally is trying to crush the idea that one other human being has. And I left. I left. Uh, I, I remember getting out of that, that. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. I actually think that I wanted to get fired because I was like, this is just a disgrace that I'm going to work for somebody who is like this. And uh, so I, I never wanted to be a celebrity chef, but I always wanted to be on TV because it's a great way to get your 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 passion and across. It's a great way to share, you know, what it is that you're you're doing, your creativity. I, I loved I loved being on TV. I really do. I enjoy it. I look forward to it. I, I thrive on it in certain cases, um, but I still thrive on being on a line. I love to cook, man. I love to cook. Now, a tradition is coming up. I know you've been on a Today Show a lot for St. Patty's Day. How do you go in? You've been on a few years doing that. How do you go in and change things up when you do something like that? Because, you know, what do we think of St. Patty's Day? We think of Corn beef and cabbage, yeah, man. or like in in Burbank, where I lived in L.A., there was a place called Timmy Nolan's. They had yeah. you know Irish nachos, you know, or yeah. Irish potato skins. As a chef, and you're sitting there, and you're on the Today Show. I mean, it's not like you're on Good Day Philadelphia, which I love, but there's a big difference. You're right. on everyone, and you're looking at there's all different types of people. Like Philadelphia people, we have a very high there's a high Irish population, but how do you try to convey when you do a, a St. Patty's day recipe for the today show to like some guy in Nebraska who doesn't even know what Ireland is? I mean, how do you come up with your ideas when you're doing a big show like that? Because everybody loves St. Patty's day and I'm sure you want to deliver something that just looks really cool. Well, one of the things working on the today show is, is one of the, the greatest experiences they, in my opinion, that you'll ever have. They are unbelievably professional. They are unbelievably supportive. They are so helpful in everything that you do. So a lot of times, you know, I have a great contact over at the Today Show that I've known for years. She is a wonderful person. Um, she's one of the executive producers on the show. Um, and she's really great because she'll say, hey, Bri, look, you know, we're, we're coming up on St. Patrick's Day. Now, I actually I have not done the Today Show with St. Patrick's Day in a couple of years because I now do. Um, I have an appearance that I do down in uh, Fort Myers, Florida, where I make, and you're going to love this, I make corned beef and cabbage cheesesteaks. Oh, man, that's so good. So so that's a that's kind of a prime example of, of some of the stuff that I try to do. So when you get to the Today Show and they say, hey, we want you to do a St. Patrick's segment, and you say, okay, well, obviously the theme is St. Patrick's Day. What is it that you guys would like to see? And they say, well, we want to see something a little bit different, you know, maybe – maybe a different take on something like this or something like that. Like they're really helpful in, in driving you to a creative point, you know, for, for this, this time around, they actually sent a list out, uh, uh you know, they sent a list out a couple of a year ago or whatever, a first segment that I did. And they said, Hey, here's the top 25 things that you would see on St. Patrick's day or whatever it was. So I looked down and I go, okay, stew, fish and chips, you know, this, this, and this. And I try to mix things up a little bit and I try to incorporate different Irish products into the mix. So, you know, for me, if I were going to do, let's say I were going to do a BLT, you know, one of the things that I would do is, uh, you know, I would take cabbage and I would replace that, 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 that lettuce with cabbage, the bacon I would do with a rasher. And that rasher is an, is, is basically a cured bacon, which is traditional bacon comes from the belly, but, but a rasher comes from the loin. So it's a cured loin. So I would take that product. I might add in a banger to that, which is a very finely ground Irish sausage. You know, so I try to find a lot of different ways to to do a spin on a classic dish. And that's really the way that I come up with a lot of the stuff that I do. I mean, fast forward to, you know, I, I, I'm going to throw a plug if you don't mind. But oh, sure. Fort Myers, you know, Fort Myers, uh, my, my buddy owns a place called the City Tavern. And I go down there every year for St. Patrick's Day, and there's 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 just thousands of people that walk the streets of this amazing place. And this is a dive bar, dude. This is a dive bar that does great food. I designed the menu for them years ago, and I try to do really cool stuff for them no matter what it is. And the corned beef and cabbage cheesesteak was one of the things that I said, this is something that we can do. It's executable. 
It's really easy. And what we do is we take, you know, I braise off cabbage, I braise off onions, and then we cook off corned beef. We slice it super thin. We get a big, huge griddle and we do it just like you would see on South Street or just like you would see at the Italian market or just like you'd see at, you know, Cleavers in Philadelphia. We drop the meat on, we caramelize the meat, we mix it in with the cabbage and the onions. We toss in there some American cheese and some provolone, which is my cheesesteak cheese. That's what I like. And and we mix it together and we put it on an Amoroso roll. So, you know, for me, that's the fun of it. That's the creative part of it. And I cook the whole time that I'm down there. Like I am on the street sweating my ass off, you know, in a chef jacket in the Florida sun. And we're just banging out. I think last year we did 700 corned beef and cabbage cheesesteaks. It sounds so good. It's so funny because, you know, coming back here, you know, I, I'm a big Scrapple fan. And I saw you posted a picture of Scrapple. And I actually saw uh, they were saying a Scrapple cheesesteak. And to me, that just sounds like it'd be so different, but it sounds good. You know what? When I the, the thing where I did the scrapple with I, I mean I posted a picture of scrapple because I, I go into I go into West Philly a lot man I really love I, I love the hood I'm just gonna say it I love the hood when I was younger and I didn't have any money not that I have money now but when I had didn't have any money that's where I used to get my tires man I used to buy used tires you know out of <laughs> West Philly like I was full blown poor man I had to do what I had to do and. That's when I found like the great little breakfast spots and the great little the, the great little sandwich shops and the great little soul food places and the great little barbecue joints. You know, one of my favorite pizza places is right over in West Philly, just outside of Overbrook. Um, I, I love West Philly, but when the Today Show they said, "Hey, you know, what would you do as an appetizer for this?" and I, I call it the Philly Dippy Deviled Egg. You know, because everybody in Philly knows what a dippy egg is. Right. You know, it's that runny yolk. So. I did a deviled egg that I added prosciutto into it, uh, you know, with a little bit of apple cider vinegar and some mustard powder and some smoked salt. And then we topped it with a with a fried dippy quail egg and a scrapple chip. Like I didn't do anything that was that was innovative. I just took a couple of classic items that people in Philly would understand. And I and I was able to showcase that to the world, and that to me was really cool. Now, where where is someone? Let's say I want to make something like that because I love to cook. Where am I going to find a quail egg? I mean, you can buy them at, at, at grocery stores at this point, man. You can go to Whole Foods, or you can go to you know, you, if you're in Philly, go down to uh, De Bruno Brothers. You know, go down and go down and see my boys down there. They're awesome, dude. You know, Emilio, who owns De Bruno at this point with his family, is is a friend of mine, and, and they carry some of the greatest products. Um, it's a lot of fun to get down into the Brunos and get some cheese and some meats and a lot of the products that they make are just brilliant. So now, as you as you as you branch out and you brand, I want to hear about your spice. You have the duff, duffified spice. How did you sure. come up with that idea, and what makes your spice different than other people's? All right. So so oddly enough, so let let's go into duffified. You know, you asked me about a brand a little bit before, and I don't think I answered that question. So I'm going to combine that in with this one. So about 10 years ago, I was sitting at my dining room table with my girlfriend at that point, and her and I were talking, and we and I kept coming up with a couple of different names for some things, and and her and I were like duffified, like duffified, you know, like I kind of live over the top, I live uh, a little bit dangerously in some cases, I'm kind of a wild card when it comes to a lot of stuff, I have my own style, I have my own kind of being, so so that world is duffified. And my brothers, who are my managers in many of the situations that I get into, they hated it. They couldn't stand it. So I was like, the hell with it. We're doing it. And she looked at me and she's like, we're doing this. No matter what you do, we're doing this. And I was like, okay, cool. Duffified. That's, that's the direction it's going to be. So I started to come up with different ideas for things. And I had an appearance coming up. And they, I was doing this crazy, crazy dinner, dude. I was doing a live dinner theater. Only I was the theater. Oh, cool. And this was at the, the Cove Haven up in, up in the Poconos, okay. like couples resorts. Right. You no, know, dude, I'm not even shitting you. I had a, I had a, I had a heart shaped tub, man. Uh, you I know, I, 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 I got to interrupt you real quick back. I yeah. used to do stand up comedy in the late eighties and the early nineties. And we used to play up the Poconos and yeah, the same thing. You go into your room and it'd be the heart shaped <laughs> tub and you'd be by yourself. You're like, I'm a comic and I'm with all couples. It's not like I'm going to pick up anybody cause it's all couples. <laughs> You're in a couple's room. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know what the thing is? Like, it's kind of musty. Right. It, it was a little bit older because they really were very big in the 70s. I mean, right. that's where that's where our parents went to get away from the kids. Right. But 
So I was doing this crazy dinner and I did a five course meal on stage and I prepped it. And then as soon as I was done prepping it, uh, like the doors would open up and all of the, the servers would show up with the next course. It was awesome. It was awesome. It was a great, great, great event. But one of the things they asked me was, do you have any swag that you can sell at the event? And I was like, no, but you know what? Let me think about it. And the woman said to me, do you have any spices or any of the blends that you make? And I said, you know what? Yeah, I do. So I, I contacted a friend of mine who did my mix for, uh, and, and what, and we bottled it and my daughters put it in the bottles for me and we labeled them and we packed them up and we brought them up with us and we sold them at the event. And what makes my spice different from everybody else's? You know, I, I use a different, there's 32 different spices and herbs that are in mine. Um, it's got lavender, it's got basil and rosemary and thyme and marjoram and mustard seed and, and big heavy grind of black pepper and sea salt and, and, and paprika and Cajun spice. And it's just a great mix. I love it on barbecue. I love it on any meat. I put it on my eggs in the morning. Um, I, I use it all the time. I mean, I still to this day use it all the time. And my daughters are even like, hey, dad, what's, you know, are we going to do, you know, are you putting duffified spice on there? You know, so it's pretty funny. Uh, I unfortunately uh, have had a major, major, major issue with my packer um, where they just cannot execute it consistently. And and that's a problem for me. Uh, you know, the last time I ordered them, they put them in the wrong bottles. Uh, you know, the last time I ordered them before that, they were the wrong color. You know, it was like, come on, man, what's going on? So if anybody out there is listening, I am looking for a spice packer. I'm looking for a blender and a packer. It's that simple. So Okay. I, you know, actually, I know a guy who owns a company in L.A. It's called, his name's George Olivos. It's called PicoDeGallo.net. It's a shaker spice. I'll see who he uses because he might yeah. be able to hook you up. But I know a guy, a guy named Shane down south who has redneck rub. I'll see who he, I'll, I'll, I'll see who they use and you might be able to hook you yeah, up. Yeah, that'd be awesome, dude. So now, the, awesome. now, now you recently, now you're, you have a podcast and I saw that uh, the wonderful Phil Rosenthal was on who is the oh, most yeah. amazing he came when I recorded in a studio in Burbank, and he came in, and you're looking at him, and, and he's so nice, and you're sitting there going, I can't believe this guy is like the creator of Everyone Loves Raymond, who's worth yeah. so much money, but he's just such a foodie, and he's just such a wonderful guy, and I know he was on your podcast. Now, when did you decide to do the podcast, and what can people expect when they listen to your podcast? So, the idea of a podcast actually came about years ago with my one of my friends, Russell Davis. Uh, Russell and I were really good friends, and we uh, we run Bar Rescue together, and we decided that we wanted to do a podcast. So the podcast that we initially started was called Road Rash, which was uh, the, the whole idea of he and I being on the road. Uh, I traveled all the time. You know, we were talking to him at times, and he was on the side of a volcano. Okay. You know, like, so, and the problem with that gets to be where trying to have two people record and have a guest on at the same time got to be really hard to do. Uh, we partnered up with a production company that really sucked. They just weren't good at it. We then partnered up with another production company who lied to us, uh, who had us sign contracts with them that my attorney was involved in. And then the guy just flaked out one day and I never saw him again. Um, so at, at that point, Russell and I kind of disbanded the idea of Road Rash. And I still had a great amount of momentum for what I did. So I decided to come up with Duffified Live. And I partnered up with a production company called Radio Influence out of Tampa, who, if it wasn't for those guys, I honestly think that I, I just I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing when it comes to the podcast today. They're they're awesome to work with. They're unbelievably forgiving with timelines and deadlines. You know, they record every show that I do. So and you know how hard it is to get guests on and to record during certain times. I typically record Mondays as well. Uh, a lot of times people don't want to record on Monday. They have to do a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday, and my show airs on Friday. So these guys are really, really good. So the show itself is all about people that I find interesting. Um, if I meet a pilot and I think he's a really cool guy, I'm going to invite him on my show. Uh, I, you know, I, I met a porn star, super great woman who, you know, she was a porn star, man. She was a great guest. We talked about everything in the industry. We talked about food. We talked about travel. We talked about booze, you know, and we just talk about experiences. I, I mean, when I interviewed Phil, 
I, I, I wasn't prepared for him the way that I thought he was. He was, was a completely different person than I had anticipated. Albeit at the same time, he was still that lovable guy that you see on, on somebody feed Phil, but he was much more in depth than that. He, he is, he's a, you know what? I'm very impressed with Phil and I'm really glad that I got to interview him and meet him, uh, you know, meet him via, via the, the, the podcast. Um, but I mean, just some of the people that I've had on, I've had professional wrestlers. I've had, um, Jesus, bartenders and chefs and, and spiritual gurus. I have a spiritual healer that I work with very closely. She's a very good friend of mine. And I assist her with some, some business stuff. And she helps me with my kind of spiritual world, which sounds weird to a lot of people. But when you have the opportunity to kind of ground yourself and look inside of yourself and see where the pure happiness comes from, it, it, it changes you a little bit. It makes you a different person. I'm a much calmer person these days. Um, I try to meditate as much as I can. I, I, I really try to look at things that, from a different light, and I learned a lot of that from her. Plus, I learned a lot from my ex-girlfriend, who was a healer as well. But So those are the types of things that we talk about on the show. Uh, we talk a lot about food. Uh, we talk a lot about drinking. We talk a lot about experiences of, of different situations. Um, I love to talk to chefs. It's really I just love talking to chefs. I have a new passion project that's coming out uh, in the next couple of months that I've been working on, which is me just interviewing a chef while we're making breakfast. Now, how do you go about the marketing of it when you try to get a guest or when whoever books your guest for you that you sit there and you have to, you know, for me, I mean, I've had, you know, so many writers, actors, musicians, I go across the gamut. I just started, you're my first chef. You know, I just, I interviewed uh, Randy Cross, who was a three-time Super Bowl champion for the uh, San Francisco 49ers. I'm trying to branch into athletes and chefs because I find it fascinating. But when people think of you as a chef, how do you sit there and convey that it's just not about cooking, it's about life experiences? Because I think we all do, there's two things that we really remember is music and food. And I remember, you know, as a kid, when I was three years old, my three favorite dishes because my mom never let me eat off the kids' menu I'd share with her, were scallops, club sandwiches, and ribs. I still remember that. <laughs> and it's the thing is, how do you convey to them that it's about experience? Because I think we, we don't look at that a lot. We don't look at it as meals, as experiences, which they are. I mean, you can't tell somebody that they're about to have an experience. It's one of the things that you can't, you can't tell people. It has to happen. Um, you know, I, uh, when I go out to eat, you know, for me, everything is an experience. I, I, every, no matter where it is, it's an experience. Um, you know, last night my daughters and I were, uh, you know, we were hungry and it was late, and we had a, we had a, we had a, you know, we had, we had a night of cleaning and bedrooms and and you know, with that, two daughters comes a little bit of arguing and stuff like that. So, so at the end of the night, we we're like, well, what do you guys want to do for dinner? And it's always a big toss up in our house. Are we going to get sushi? Are we going to go out for Indian? And last night was poke. Uh, the girls were dying for poke. They just really wanted it. We've got a really cool little place in Ardmore called Poke Ono that does a great job. So for me, that was an experience. We walked in. We had a conversation with the guy. We were the last ones in there. It was, it was five minutes of nine, and they closed at nine, you know? I see every meal as an experience. Uh, you know, on the, day of, uh, the day of the Super Bowl parade, I had to have a cheesesteak. It was it was iconic for me the day that the Super Bowl that we had our parade that I had a cheesesteak. It was just that simple. So I went to Mama's like that's an experience. So I see every single meal as an experience. I try to uh, I, I try to let people know that what we're about to do is an experience. But most people go, oh, we're just going out to dinner because a lot of people don't get it the way that I get it. So the way that I talk about food, the way that we discuss it, the preparation, the 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 history behind the dish, the creative behind the dish, what was the inspiration? Those are things that I really try to take into play and I really try to talk about when I talk about food. See, that's awesome. Yeah, it's so funny because you talk about experiences. Like the other night, I kept seeing people post on Facebook about the Chinese New Year. Now, I, I cook during the week. Joanna cooks on weekends. But I was like, I want Chinese food. So I was like, there's a place right up the street, but I just happened to look at Groupon. And there was a place four miles away, and I went. It was called Asian Chef. 
and I ended up talking to the kid who's part owner, and it was great, because even though I got to take out, it was cool just to talk to the owner, and it was an experience, then we came home, and we ate it, and that's what's great, I think that's what's great about your podcast, too, is that, you know, people, you know, you can convey food with anything, you can convey food like you, the, the parade, you had cheesesteaks, you know, then you could talk about the parade, you know, it's just the way it is me when I used to go to Stone Harbor and Avalon, after a drunk night, you'd always go to Circle Pizza, I mean, there's certain things you remember that put it yeah. all together. yeah. You know, here and here's here's a question for you. How do you determine who's going to be on your podcast based on the awesome people that you meet every day? Well, I just determine a lot of times if I watch TV, if I see an actor, I hit them up. I've gotten to love the fact that I've gotten a lot of drummers on because one of my really close friends is Jason Aldean's drummer, but he was also, he's in the rock world. So I just sit there and I find out guests that I find fascinating. If I find, you know, I've had guests somewhere I go, oh my God, you know, like tomorrow I'm talking to Graham Parker. Graham Parker, I'm, I'm in London. I'm, I'm Skyping him in London. So I sit there and I just look at people in the entertainment world that fascinate me. And for you, I've been wanting to get a chef and you follow me on Twitter. And then I went, okay. And so I followed you back and I said, come on my show. And that's how I do it. I think it's just something that something pops in. You'll watch something and you'll see a guest and you go, this is who I want on my show. And you get them sometimes and sometimes you don't. You know, it's so funny because I have, uh, I have, I've, I've, I've dealt with, you know, and you have as well. You deal with publicists all the time. You deal with agents and managers just to get somebody on your show. And for me, I made it apparent, and I hope, was it easy to get me on your show? Oh, yeah, it was It was one of those, you know, you're, you're, you, and this is so funny, one of the other easiest guests I ever got, which is amazing, was Slim Jim Phantom from the, from the Stray Cats. That took me two tweets. Really? Two tweets. I tweeted him, and then I tweeted him again, and I said, these drummers have been on, and he goes, cool, he followed me on Twitter, I set it up. It's weird how I, that stuff works. I did, who did we interview? What, who's the guy from uh, Anthrax? Ian? Uh, Scott Ian. Scott Ian. He was brilliant, dude. He was awesome. We videoed with him. This was on Road Rash, and I hope I, I wish I could get him on on Duff Live because he was a great interview. But one of the things that I have a big problem with is is dealing with publicists. And I made sure that when I talked to my assistant, who Sam is wonderful and she was she's really good about all this stuff. But you know, she hasn't tweeted in four years. Just so you know. Right. So and I texted her when I saw your th- your your tweet or whatever it was, and I tagged her in that. To, I said, you got to make sure you hop back on Twitter because it's a really great way to get guests. You know, if you can have that communication. But one of the things that I really have said to everybody that I work with is make it as easy as possible for people to get in touch with me. That's the way to do make it. Make it easy as possible because, you know, I mean, look, I, I, you know, I, I, I have two massive chefs, both of whom I know. Uh, one of whom is 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 a friend. Uh, the other one is uh, just an acquaintance, but he's done some work with some people that I know. And 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 the two of them dealing with publicists makes me I, I just won't interview them. Right. They have made it. One of them took six months just to get on the phone with me. That's like, crazy. You know, it, it doesn't matter how many followers you have at that point. It's still publicity. You know, when I do well, I mean, I have a great following for my podcast and, and I've got a good name for myself. So I think that helps me a little bit. But dealing with publicists and managers and all that stuff is just a pure, it's a pain in the ass, man. It just makes it not enjoyable. Exactly. Well, hey, man, you know what? I, I'm glad you came on. This is good. I, I've had a good conversation. I love talking to food and I love talking to you from Philly. Now, now your your website is uh, chefbrianduffy.com. Yep. And your Twitter is at chef. Bryduff, Bryduff, yeah. right? No, it's, so they're my Twitter, and my Instagram are all the same. It's Chef Bryduff, C H E F B R I D U F F, and then my Facebook is uh, is Chef Brian Duffy. But uh, I want everybody, if you can, go over and follow those things and start to follow the new show or the new series that Michael Tips and I created called Bar Crashers, uh, where we get to go all over the world to small towns. And we get to meet uh, city officials and then find out what the great things about that town are and why people like their bars so much. What is the best? What's the best stuff about the greatest bar? What's the worst stuff about the worst bar? You know, it's really about the positive world that we live in and that there are a tremendous amount of operators out there that are doing unbelievable things in these small towns. And we want to bring a positive light to that. 
And now, now, where can people find your podcast on iTunes or where, what's the best way? Uh, you, you, you can you can type in Duffified Live and you can go directly to my website for Duffified Live for that. You can go to RadioInfluence.com, subscribe through there, or you can go to Google Play. You can go to Stitcher. You can go to iTunes. We make sure that it is available to everybody. We are an equal opportunity employer, I guess you'd say. Awesome. So people, go check Brian out. Google just. Google Duffified, you know, start eating. Also, people, yeah. follow, me, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. People, it's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 670 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'll get back to you. And Instagram, it's coopertalk1. And don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. You know, I went through that heart problem a few years ago. I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 easy, low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long lists, long list of ingredients because, you know, you guys, you get intimidated. It's cooking for one. You can get it at Amazon or you can go to StopTheSalt.com and I will sign it for you and I make more money. Anyway, please check out Chef Brian Duffy. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>